I've been thinking again about living in a world so powerfully shaped by science, very often for the good, of course, but nonetheless leaving us with big questions about how to understand the uncertainties of science as much as the practical benefits it delivers, how to relate to experts that can often disagree, how science can be used to illuminate but also to control. And this has come to the fore once more with the COVID pandemic, exposing the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of our culture as much as the strengths and capacities. And it feels as if the weaknesses are coming up in really what's a decades-long dispute about how to relate to science. The usual response is to wade through the literature to understand the peer-reviewed material but of course only the experts people who have dedicated decades can really do that with any kind of insight and so you and I for the most part rely on experts be they scientists or more usually journalists and writers to do that interpreting for us and this is where things get difficult of course. The way I've been thinking about it is in relation to power, because this is a form of power exercised in contemporary culture and an area of power that's hotly contested as new forms of media find or fight for a place along traditional forms. And whilst power, of course, is an enormously complicated business, one way of trying to negotiate it is to learn to feel a way into the power that you are encountering, to ask questions about its spirit. In particular, is it exercising a form of love or fear? Is it exercising a form of illumination or coercion? Is it building a sense of openness or conspiracy? You listen to what's been said with your head, of course, but also with your heart, even with your gut. And without leaping to quick solutions, nonetheless attend to the fruits of what's been said. By their fruits, you shall know them, is the old saying, of course. But also by their roots, what ground is being drawn on, not only in terms of expertise, but also in terms of worldview, understanding of humanity. Now this requires what you might call a practice or training even in discernment. And one way that I found helpful is because of having studied the New Testament, particularly in the Greek, where various words are used for power. And they're very helpful to consider because they give you a feel for how power is exercised in different forms. New Testament's very interested in power, not to shirk it, but in order to discern it. And two words particularly, I hope, are illuminating. One is the word dunamis, the most common word for power actually in the New Testament. And the other is exousia, which is also used. Dunamis might be thought of as grace and space power. It's the power most commonly associated with the divine. It's generous, it acts by outpouring, it acts too by sacrificing something of itself for the benefit of others. It seeks to attract you rather than compel you, 
to help you to comprehend rather than just to enforce. You might think of it as the power of the spirit that is in all things, flows through all things, enables all things. In fact, in the pre-Christian world, in writers like Aristotle, for example, dunamis is often talked of as the potentiality within all things from which life and the world as a whole emerges. So it's a kind of creative power from within to without, from the bottom up, reaching to all that might be. It's the power of love, which seeks to expand, to bring liberty, to bring light. It's the power that's most commonly associated with Jesus in particular in the New Testament. It contrasts with exousia, which you can think of as command and control power rather than grace and space power. It's the power that Paul invokes when he says women should keep their heads covered in church. It's the power that Pilate says he has before Jesus. It's the power that's given to the authorities. For example, the authority of the beast in Revelation is said to be exousia. It's not all bad. There is a certain kind of exousia that's needed in the world, in creation. So, for example, there are the angels known as the authorities that have exousia. It's a bit like the lawful power that keeps things in their proper place so that they can function, so that the planetary spheres can turn. But what's lawful is, of course, very different from matters of the spirit. And so exousia is okay when it's kept within a wider context of dunamis when command and control is in the service of grace and space. When that doesn't happen, exousia will seek security, for example, uh, and clarity. It'll be happy to divide and expel rather than unite and combine. It speaks from a place of fearfulness rather than love, which can relax and let go in order to enable. So what's this got to do with science communication? Well, consider five characteristics of science and how it might illuminate what you're being told, what you're hearing. And the first is the reductive nature of science. It is a method of trying to understand the world that for the most part takes apart, fragments in order to then rebuild a bigger picture. And it's very powerful, but it has an effect when it comes to the media because the media too is inclined to grab the fragmented, reductive part, turn it into a headline, say a broad statistic or an isolated finding, and then use that to draw you in, to compel you into reading about the science that's being discovered. And so when you think about that as a form of power, it's much more in the command and control space than it is in the grace and space place. It's much more exousia than it is dunamis. It's trying to grab you by giving you a part and it's quite hard to find therefore in the media places where you can consider the whole, where the particular story can be integrated into a wider field of understanding. It's one of the reasons I think that long-form journalism and particularly long-form podcasts and YouTubes have their appeal because they have the space 
to exercise this gentler, more open approach both to communication and to the exercise of cultural power. Another dynamic that you commonly see is when a scientist or scientific authority is really being used to provoke, to act as a provocateur rather than to offer expertise that can be woven into a dialogue. Now again, this is using an exousia kind of power rather than a dunamis. It's trying to command the situation, maybe to generate a new story to try and give an account of things legs, as the journalists say. I think this is the kind of power that has rather overtaken a figure like Richard Dawkins, who became very closely associated with the power to provoke. When folded in with celebrity, it has that extra charisma, which can do that, of course, too. It's partly understandable because the science is complicated. Media tends to work as much through personality as it does through straightforward fact. And so when trying to find a light to lead you through the shadows and complications of science, a trusted figure is very compelling. But ask yourself, is this about the power of provocation or is it about the power, the dunamis of dialogue, trying to tease out again, trying to open up into a wider space so that you feel freer to consider, you feel you've really been educated, not you've been forced into a corner and compelled to accept a point of view. A third major area is the old problem of the difference between causes and correlations. Science, for the most part, deals with correlations, but they readily slip and become treated as causes. This is particularly so in a situation like a pandemic, where there's lots of unknowns, lots of variables. And so, for example, risk factors get treated as if they're direct causes of the transmission of disease. Um, you can get some sense of this by looking at how one Discovery One announcement would be treated differently across various magazines and newspapers. So, for example, one story I looked at fairly recently was about the genes associated with intelligence. And one newspaper reported it as genes for intelligence have been found with the promise that in the future we'll be able to select for greater intelligence. But another newspaper reported it as precisely the opposite that intelligence is too complicated to be understood at a purely genetic level. Uh, it sort of told you to give up your hope of being able to choose intelligence in your offspring, say, in the future. And then a third magazine, which considered it more in the round, said, look, intelligence is a complicated business. Genes can cast a certain amount of light on it, but as science is increasingly suggesting, genes are just one part in a whole complex, a whole system that makes up our biology. And so that was actually what drove the story. Now, of course, that complexity doesn't match full very neatly into the social media world. And so before you know what's happened, one version of the story has been grabbed, become a meme, another version of the story has been grabbed, become a meme, and you find the conflicts which play out week by week. Scientists don't help sometimes too, because they can slip from correlation to causation. 
the place that I notice this most of all is when the brain is said to cause consciousness that mind and brain, neuroscience and psychology are pretty much one and the same thing. This is just not the case at all. And yet when that happens, it propagates this sense that science really deals in causes rather than correlations. When it comes to the exercise of the kind of power, broadly speaking, I feel that discussion around causes has this feel of command and control power. Causes are normally resorted to to try and bring security, bring certainty to a situation which otherwise provokes fear. But correlations tend to be discussed more with this aura of dunamis. Then we're in the environment of potentiality, possibility, exploration, interest, that kind of illumination it's the expansive way in which science can be talked about rather than the narrow. A fourth area in which you can detect different powers at play concerns the need for impact. Science often uses the media to generate an impact assessment that can be used to secure more funding. A piece of research that is deemed to be very important to the public can be used to help secure ongoing funding. I think that the dark side of the pharmaceutical world has been very good at this. The famous example is the way that medication for depression, say, is told as, say, addressing chemical imbalances, when there's really no evidence that depression is caused by chemical imbalances. It was originally the concoction of an advertising company, but this has come become very widespread in the culture. It's an easily understood message in an otherwise very complicated part of our lives, and so it's become the received wisdom. Another way that you see this happening actually is making a different kind of impact. It's the impact that wants to pursue a certain kind of agenda. One commonly around is trying to close the gap between humans and other animals. You know the story, we're just fancy chimps. One that I saw recently that particularly amused me was a story that reported that killer whales, orcas, could speak. And so the newspaper article quoted someone talking about cross-species speech. Now, the minute you start to think about language, you realise how the grunt of an animal has almost nothing to do with the syntax and meaning that you and I deploy. But nonetheless, it fitted this story that there's not much difference between us and other animals. And so it ran. It's an exercise of command and control power, exousia again, trying to force a wider agenda through the use of the story and is not so interested in dunamis that might be, for example, wanting to explore the uncertainties of language, what really its genius is, the love of knowledge for knowledge's sake, you might say, rather than the exercise of power to push a particular point of view. The fifth area is when science isn't just being used to push a particular agenda, but is in a competition with other worldviews. Peter Harrison, the historian of science, has written really interestingly about this, about how, particularly in the 19th century, it became quite common for public communicators of science to think that the task was to 
suppress other worldviews, to supersede other worldviews, particularly religious worldviews, of course. And that can infect the way science is still talked about today. You feel it when science is talked about in tribal ways, when scientism starts to creep in. And conversely, I think it might explain a lot about conspiracy theories because they arise as reactions to a too dominant science in a sort of effort to try and find a space for an alternative point of view. But of course, because it's this particular kind of power that's at play, the command and control, zero-sum game approach to power, the conspiracy has to become even more exaggerated than the narrowness of the science. And so you get this escalation of wild stories, even of, of madness in its extreme. So in terms of discerning this, you know it when you feel that the status of science itself is somehow at stake, when there's an atmosphere of needing to triumph, or alternatively, writing extravagant promissory notes way into the future to secure status now. Science has become a battleground, those who are pro fighting those who are against, and any kind of love and power associated with dunamis slips away as there's a struggle for command and control. The good news is that I think science needs dunamis far more than it needs merely to assert itself because the openness, the expansiveness, the reaching to other worldviews to inspire new insights, the spirit of imagination that is so important in terms of the development of science won't let it go. It begins and ends in wonder, as Aristotle said of all human knowledge. I particularly find this myself when I need to have my spirit lifted about science in the area of astrophysics. It comes partly from my own undergraduate studies in physics, uh, particularly the experience of trying to measure the heights of mountains on the moon, would you believe? It did nothing to advance science, but did give me the experience of arising in the middle of the night, almost like a monk to go in the darkness, in the quiet, to the observatory and have the chance to use a relatively powerful telescope to gaze onto another world. In terms of the science, we were measuring the lengths of shadows, but it was a tremendous experience and one that felt opening. That's what I remember far more of it now. And I live just up the road from the Greenwich Observatory and when I go walking in Greenwich Park, I think of how Herschel's telescope is there and how it was said that Haydn, the composer, once looked through it and was so inspired by what he saw that it led to him composing the creation, which of course includes the famous chorus, The Heavens Are Telling the Glory of God. That is science in its grace and space form, loving life for life's sake, giving itself away to inspire others, making connections, drawing by beauty, by its allure, rather than compelling, command and controlling. 
So as these science conflicts and others come towards you, perhaps think about power, feel it in your heart, look at something that's more long form rather than immediate, and perhaps use this relationship between love and power to discern what's going on.